0: I don't know if you have thought about this, but it's really easy to say things like, I love God. I love my neighbor. Or even something like, Jesus is Lord. Really easy to say those things, isn't it? I mean, we can roll them off the tongue. We can even say them amongst others. But the question is, what do these words mean? And do you believe them? And belief is not just, as we've talked about multiple times in Matthew, biblical belief is not just mental assent, it is demonstrated in action. How does it change you? In other words, if you claim to love God, if you claim to love your neighbor, if you claim to say that Jesus is Lord, how does it change your life? Really, those issues are going to be what Jesus brings up and what he discusses with those who are in front of him today in Matthew 22. Just to review briefly where we're at in Matthew, Jesus is in the temple. He entered the temple as the son of God. He entered the temple as the son of David, as the Christ, the long-awaited king of Israel. He's brought into the temple in that way. And what has happened as uh, most recently is he has is confronted, confronted the chief priests and the elders of the people, the leadership of the people in the temple, with three parables— parable of the two sons going into the vineyard, the parable of uh, the wicked tenants of the vineyard, the parable of the wedding feast. And in those parables, Jesus has gone on the offensive to those leaders and to Israel at large and said, you are not doing uh, the Father's will. You're not doing what God has called you to do. In fact, you're seeking to be owners of the vineyard and uh, owners of Israel, not servants, not seeking the interests of God. And Jesus went on these. So Jesus went on the assault. He went on the offensive with those three parables. But then what we saw last week, starting last week, is in response to that, the Pharisees in 2215, they get together, they huddle up and they say, well, uh, let's uh, let's figure out how we can trap this guy. Let's let's figure out how we can scheme together with our words um, to trap him up in a word. And so then began a sequence of questions. The first question was by the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians about, is it right to pay taxes? Is it right to pay not just any tax, but the poll tax to Caesar? And then the Sadducees jumped in, even though they weren't part of the, directly part of the Pharisees' schemes. They, they jump in and say, well, what about the resurrection? What about the resurrection? That's certainly foolish, isn't it, Jesus? And each of those two times, what has happened is the tables have turned. Jesus has deftly... He has easily defeated each of those questions, not getting tripped up, and he has humbled, he has silenced his opponents, and in so doing, he has been shown to be the supreme teacher, the supreme teacher. And really, that continues this week. I said there's really four of these episodes where Jesus demonstrates his supremacy as teacher, where he puts his opponents to silence, humbling them, and being exalted in his status, And then also, at the same time, teaching his disciples and the crowds who are listening in. And so, really, our big idea for this week is the same as last week, as we continue through these episodes, and the big idea is this, silence. Silence, marvel at and obey the supreme teacher, Jesus, the Son of God. Silence, marvel at and obey the supreme teacher, Jesus, the Son of God. And so we saw two of these lessons that Jesus was really teaching to his disciples ultimately last week, and he's going to do the final two lessons for his disciples. Yes, he's going to humble and put to silence his opponents. He's going to be exalted in his status, but he's also teaching his disciples and the audience of Matthew as we go through this. So the first lesson this week is this, love Yahweh, love Yahweh with all yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. Love Yahweh with all of yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So remember the Pharisees in 2215, they were the guys that have schemed together initially to say, all right, it's time for us to go on the offensive. Let's trip this guy up. Let's humble him by our own prowess in the scriptures and teaching. Let's, let's humble this guy. And so what they had done initially, the Pharisees initially hadn't come, only the disciples of the Pharisees. Their understudies had come first, and they had failed. Then the opponents of the Pharisees, the political and religious opponents of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, came and they failed. So now the Pharisees come together again, this time around Jesus, after they've heard, oh, he silenced the Sadducees. He put them to silence. Now it's our turn, the full-fledged Pharisees coming together to test Jesus. And they put forward a spokesman. Verse 35. And one of them, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer. What does he mean by a lawyer? A lawyer um, is an expert in the law. Which law? The law of Moses. Two of these guys are. The Pharisees were kind of a grassroots movement, um, but they encompassed a lot of the lay leadership in Israel. They were respected as interpreters. And so here we've got a group of them in the temple, and then they put forward their expert, their expert lawyer. They're expert in the Mosaic law. What does this lawyer do? He asks Jesus a question, but here we get the same refrain that has happened through all of these questionings. It's not a genuine question. It's in order to test him, in order to test Jesus. The word here for test is the same word that is used of Satan's temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. This is not a genuine question. This is not um, seeking true knowledge, faith-seeking knowledge. This is trying to trip Jesus up, trying to make him stumble. And so in that spirit, this is, with that knowledge, Matthew frames the question that this lawyer asks. Verse 36, teacher. Now that's the third time that's been said. With the disciples of the Pharisees, they began with teacher. With the Sadducees, they began with teacher. And now this lawyer begins with teacher. Formally, it is a title of uh, respect. But it's that very status of teacher that they are seeking to undermine. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? That's what this lawyer asks. Which is the great commandment in the law? Now, let's think about this question for a minute uh, because we understand that this lawyer is trying to trip Jesus up. He's trying, to, he's trying to get him to stumble. He's trying to snare him. But how does this question form a snare? It doesn't seem like it on the surface of it. How is this a snare? Well, let's think about it. We understand that in the Mosaic law, and the law here refers to Genesis through Deuteronomy. A lot of those laws are said in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, but there is hundreds of them. There are hundreds of formal commands in the law. but uh, And even it seems like, uh, from extra-biblical literature, it seems like the rabbis um, had a debate. I mean, they had debates on this sort of thing. Can we sum the law up into anything shorter? So how in the world is this question a snare? Well, probably what they're thinking is, well, if Jesus proposes one, all right, here's the great commandment, here it is, then they are anticipating, oh, Well, we can propose something else to show it's like, well, that's a good one, but this one's better, right? That's probably what they're thinking. Or maybe they're thinking along the lines of how can you possibly rank God's commands? If God gave the command, it's important, isn't it? So why are you saying that one's important? What about this one? Or what about that one? They're all important, So whether it's one or the other of those, either way, you could see how this would snare Jesus, how it would potentially diminish him in the eyes of the crowds. But what does Jesus do? Verse 37, instantly he says this, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So he answers them he answers them directly, here is the great commandment. Here's what it is. It is this. And what he is doing is he is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. Go ahead and turn back to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is easy. It's like the m- minor prophets are like, where is Zechariah? You know. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Actually we're going to start in verse 4. And in the context of Deuteronomy, here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. Moses has in chapter 5 just reiterated the 10 commandments, the 10 words. And the 10 words are kind of like the 10 key organizing principles for the constitution of Israel. Sort of like the bill of rights for our constitution, right? Here are the 10 principles out of which all of the law flows. And then what starts to happen in chapter 6, and in the passage we're looking at, is Moses kind of goes back and starts to expound on, let's dive into those. Let's dive into those principles, and what do those look like? And so he begins, really, in verse 4, with this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh, So what does that mean? Uh, It means that there's only one Yahweh uh, alone, and uh, Israel is to have exclusive allegiance to this God and who he is. But flowing out of that allegiance is what? Verse 5, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You shall... And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It is Deuteronomy 6.5 that Jesus quotes. And what is Moses' point? If God is who he says he is, and you have a covenant relationship with him and with this God who is alone, the true God, what is the only proper response? Love. shall love Yahweh your God. Now, what does love mean? Now, we all think we have an intuitive sense of what love means, but biblically speaking, what is love? Sometimes the soppy sentimentality of what we think normally think about with love has driven people to say, "Well, really, biblically speaking, uh, love is an action; it's not a feeling." And so people say, "Yeah, if you look at," um, and, and it's true in a sense, right? If we were to look across the scriptures, love is not just something that resides in your heart internally and has nothing going out. Love is demonstrated in action. That is true. But we also see very clearly in the scriptures that love is an emotion. Love is an affection. But a deep-rooted one, especially when we're talking about God, love is both an affection and an action. Love is an affection for the beloved that is demonstrated in action towards the beloved. So we understand when... Moses is telling Israel, you shall love Yahweh your God. What is he saying? He's saying your affections need to be directed towards this God, your devotion that demonstrates itself in action. And he's going to specify, well, what does this love look like? With all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might, now, we can, dis- we can distinguish between those terms, but you will, I think, agree with me that really what Moses is saying, when you pile those terms up, we're talking about loving God with all of who we are. Every aspect, every part of who we are as a creature is to be devoted and oriented towards loving God. So yes, we can distinguish between heart, soul, and might, but taken together... What is the intent of being communicated? You love God with all of who you are. It means you love him with your time. There's not a segment of your life where, okay, uh, this is God's time and this is my time. This is me time. Every moment, every aspect of life, every resource at your disposal, it's not like, well, this money is for God, you know, 10% maybe, Uh, and this money is for me, it's all God's money. Uh, It's all of whatever other resources you have. That's the idea, is because of who God is, then we must, we ought to, the fundamental command is we love him with all of who we are. And then Moses delineates these three things. And uh, with all of your heart. Now, when we, we hear the word heart, Uh, As Westerners, we think of the emotions. And that's true. It is partly the emotions. But the heart in Hebrew conception is not just the emotions, it's your intellect, it's your will, it's your reasoning power. You can think of the heart as like the control center of your being in in biblical thought. So, yes, it includes the emotions, but it also includes your, your mental capacity, it includes your willpower. That's what's being meant with heart. So every decision you make, every affection you have, every, every consideration you have ought to be oriented towards loving God. But then what about the soul, right? With all your heart and with all of your soul. Now we hear the word soul and because we are influenced by Greek thinking uh, in, our, in our way back history, right? We think of the soul as the immaterial kind of floaty part of our being. Well, that's true, but in Hebrew conception, the, uh, the idea of the soul is the idea of life, like the, your whole being. So yes, it, it includes your immaterial component, but it includes your whole being, which includes the physical component as well. So this isn't just uh, the heart, yeah, the internal control center of your being, but it's all of your life, all of your energies. That's what Moses means. And then finally, with all of your might, the idea is like any physical strength, any external strength you might have, you're is- issuing that might, your resources, your physical resources towards the end of loving God and showing that love in all of your being. So again, we can distinguish between these terms, but once we pile them up, what's the, uh, what's the understanding? The fundamental command, the fundamental march- marching orders for humanity is loving God with all of yourself. No segment of your life is exempt from this command. And you see, you see how, why Jesus would call this your greatest command, because even as Moses goes on, he says, uh, because if that's true, that you love God, then you're going to listen to all the rest of the commands. In other words, what Jesus is beginning to do, Jesus is not saying, oh, you can set aside everything else as long as you just love. He's not saying that. He's saying, if you truly love God, then you will obey every other command because that demonstrates. What is love? It's affection in action. And so if you truly love God with all of who you are, then that will demonstrate itself out into all of the other commands that Moses then references in the coming verses. Now, as we read through that, Remember, Jesus is quoting that passage, but you might have noticed something. Go back to Matthew 22. Go back to Matthew 22. So we read what Jesus says as he quotes that, and he quotes it very, very, uh, basically the same wording, except for one. Verse 37 of Matthew 22. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Do you see what Jesus just did there? Deuteronomy 6.5 says, with all of your might, Jesus says, with all of your mind. Now, definitely it's true that what Moses is saying, we just said, it, encorp- it encompasses all of your being. So it would definitely include mind, your thinking power, your, your intellect, But why does Jesus highlight that? He's got to have a reason. He knows his Old Testament. Why is he highlighting particularly the mind, the intellect? Well, think of the context. What has been happening in these last few episodes? We have a lot of smart people, like the disciples of the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. A lot of smart people, and how are they using their intellect to try to trip Jesus up? to assault the sent one of God, to assault at the very least a prophet of God, let alone the Messiah himself. And so Jesus is not only saying, yes, this is the fundamental command, but he is subtly critiquing and uh, exposing. uh, If you want to talk about the greatest commandment, well, that's loving God with all of who you are, including your intellect, but you guys are using your intellect to undermine God's sent speak spokesman. But Jesus doesn't stop there. This is very interesting. They just ask, well, what's the great commandment? He said that, but then he goes on verse 39. And a second, a second commandment is like it. What does he mean by like it? This word could mean uh, just similarity, but it can also mean like having the same level as importance. Now, I don't think he's saying that it is the same level of importance, the same level of greatness, but he's saying it's, it's really close what is it? The second, a second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's a formal similarity. Both commands begin with you shall love. And then there's a question of who do you love? We've already talked about loving God with all of yourself, but now there's a command, the second command to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is not saying love yourself. Okay. Let's make that very clear. Jesus is saying, you love yourself as it is, and as much as you love that, look at how you love yourself, and then that's the kind of love that you should have for your neighbor. And so, what does that, what does that mean? How do we love ourselves? Well, actually, um, we each think pretty highly of ourselves, don't we? Right? We have great affection for ourselves. But not only that, it's affection that demonstrates itself in action, right? Because I love myself, I'm going to feed myself, I'm going to clothe myself. I'm going to bathe myself. I'm going to pursue my interests because I love myself. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that, and this is, he's quoting Leviticus 19 here, 1918. And he's saying, all right, the second greatest commandment, very close, because he's going to say both the law and the prophets depend on both of these, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now, what does love for neighbor look like? It is affection, true affection for your neighbor, that does what? Demonstrates itself in action. Put another way, here's another way to helpfully define love. Love is doing what is best for someone else, even at great cost to yourself. Love does what's best for what's someone else, even at great cost to oneself. And that should be coming out of affection. And someone might ask, in fact, uh, one of the parallel accounts, there's a follow-up question to Jesus. And the question is who is my neighbor? right? Who do I have to love? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who am I have to love? And the answer that Jesus gives is uh, the determining factor on who's a neighbor is you. How do you prove to be a neighbor to those around you? In other words, everyone is a neighbor. Now, not, not everyone is equally a neighbor, but everyone is a neighbor at some level. So it could be someone in Israel, or in our case, the church, could be uh, your literal neighbor, uh, could be an enemy, because we are to love our enemies. These two commands are the most important. Look at what Jesus says about them. Verse 40, on these two commandments, depend. Now the word there for depend is literally hang. So you can have in your mind, imagine two pegs that you have in a wall and you've got a very heavy sack, right? And you take this very heavy sack and you hang it on these two pegs. That's kind of the imagery that Jesus is giving here. On these two commandments, hang all the law, and the prophets. Now, what is he referring to there by the law and the prophets? That is a common way of referring to all the Old Testament scriptures. So he's saying the whole Old Testament, all of its commands, what does it all depend on? It boils down to this. Love God with all of yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. Why would that be? Why would that be? Well, what, what you come to notice, especially if you go to the prophets is the prophets will be talking to Israel, say Isaiah. So in Isaiah 1, Isaiah is talking to Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. It's part of Israel. And he's saying, well, you guys are doing all these external forms that are purporting to worship God and love God. But you're oppressing your neighbor. You're doing injustice to your neighbor. So you're not loving your neighbor. And what God says is you're not loving me. These two commands are inseparable and they're connected. That's why Jesus says they're like to one another. In other words, what we see in the Old Testament and in the New is that if you claim to love God, that's great, but how does that love demonstrate itself into action? It demonstrates itself into action by loving your neighbor as yourself. They are inseparable. You cannot claim to love God and not love your neighbor. In fact, that's what the prophets talk about in the Old Testament is you're not loving your neighbor, you're not loving God. You can't. They are inseparably connected. They are inseparably connected. Or you might say that, oh yeah, I do good things for my neighbor, right? I love my neighbor, but I actually don't like, care much for God. Well, then you're an idolater. They hang together. they work together. This is what God demands of humanity. This is who he's created us to be, not just for the Old Testament, but for the New Testament. Paul and Romans and elsewhere will say the exact same thing that Jesus says. What are the fundamental commandments? How do you fulfill the law? It's not that the commands are unimportant. Don't misunderstand Jesus. Jesus is not saying, eh, specific commands are unimportant. Just do what you, just love. All you need is love, right? It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you're talking about any specific command that Jesus or God gives, you drive that back to one of two principles, loving your neighbor horizontally or loving your, uh, loving your God vertically. And if you love God, you're going to love your neighbor. And if you're not loving your neighbor, you're not going to love God. That's how this works. So Jesus has successfully dodged this question. We don't hear anything from this lawyer, but we understand given the pattern that's been shown in this chapter. Um, He's put to silence too. He's dodged the question because what would the objection have been, right? Oh, you, you elevated that command? Well, what about this command? That would have been the objection to Jesus. Or uh, how can you rank God's commands? But what Jesus has said is, actually, you can trace any command back to these two and especially back to the one. And effectively, what he has said is all of the commandments hang on these two. So that's why I can boil it down to one. He has dodged the, the potential critique And he's put the guy to silence, but what is he also doing? He's teaching his disciples. This is what Jesus commands us. This is what God commands us as disciples. Love God with all of yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. You might say, well, yeah, but uh, can we say this another way? Is there another way to talk about loving your neighbor as yourself? What does that look like? Well, thankfully, Jesus gave another instance in the same book at least of an idea, of shaping what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself. Go back to Matthew 7. Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom culture, the kingdom uh, righteousness that Jesus' disciples are and must demonstrate. And as he's entering into his conclusion in the Sermon on the Mount, he kind of sums up his sermon in a very pithy phrase in verse 12. Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now note this, for this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus in Matthew 22 is saying, the law and the prophets hang on loving God with all of yourself and loving your neighbor as yourself. And really what he's doing in seven twelve here is he's talking about the love your neighbor command. He's saying, all right, uh, what does it mean to love your neighbor? It means this. What you want other people to do to you, not just like, I'd like them to give me a million dollars, right? Like, that'd be nice. Um, So you're going to give a million dollars to them, right? That's not the idea. The idea is when you consider God's law and God's justice and what you think you deserve, your rights, how you ought to be treated as an image bearer of God, think about that for yourself. And then what? Take the initiative and extend that to others. In other words, what is love? Love does what's best for someone else, even at great cost to yourself. Not dependent on someone loving you first, you're to take the initiative and be generous. That's another way of thinking about what does it mean to love our neighbor. So how do we apply this? How do we think about this? Again, not only for the Old Testament, but for all the scriptures, when we say that God requires of us these two commands. Jesus is not making other commands unnecessary, but he's showing what these, they are rooted in. Every command is rooted in one of these two, and really both. So what? So know the commands of scripture. Like what? Like, don't murder You're not to murder, but why are you not to murder? Because that's not loving your neighbor and it's not loving the image of God. See, you can trace any given command. Know the commands, but then trace them back to these two commands in these principles of love. Know the commands of scripture. Know the commands that Jesus gives. You are to live by those because they demonstrate love for God and love for others. It's so easy and quick to say, I love God. I love my neighbor. But do you grasp what that means? Loving God is truly affectional. It truly does come from the affections. But it demonstrates itself in everyday actions. Do your everyday actions demonstrate a devotion to God? Let's imagine that we were to take a video of your last week. And maybe not even your thoughts, which is a whole nother level, but let's just say your external actions. We had a video tape and we played it on this screen. Could we see from that video that you are devoted to God? Or would we see an idolater, someone who is in love with themselves and their own interests and having no interest for the one true and living God? Do your everyday actions demonstrate a devotion to God? Are you seeking to know God more so that you love him more? Are you spending time in the scriptures, not because it's a checklist, but because you want to know and to love him more? Are you praying, not just because it's something you need to do, but because you want to relate to this one true and living God who has saved you if you are in Christ? And then the question is, how is your love for your neighbor? Do you seek the best interests of your neighbor? Here I want to say something. Being nice is not the same as loving a person. Now, it's good to be nice. I'm not saying don't be nice, right? Don't be a jerk. I'm not saying that. But being nice does not equal loving someone. And in fact, niceness, exterior niceness, can cloak hatred, can't it? What is love? Love does what's best for someone else, even at great cost to oneself. Your love, if you truly do love your neighbor, should show itself in concrete action. If you're a member of Faith Bible Church, do you know all of the other members of Faith Bible Church? See, you can't love someone you don't know. Do you know all of the uh, members of Faith Bible Church? And in knowing them, are you pursuing their interests as a fellow member? Do you know who is in this very room? If we, I mean, if we're going to talk about neighbor, our closest neighbor, especially as the people of God, is our fellow members. We ought to know them, know their needs, and pursue them, serve them like Jesus has served us. How are you loving those with you interact with during the week? How about your family? They're your neighbors. How about your literal neighbors? How about your fellow employers or fellow students? How about your enemies? Are you pursuing the best interests of your neighbor? Love does what's best for someone else, even an enemy, even at great cost to oneself. Here's the thing. You don't get to pick and choose who you love. Everyone is a neighbor. Doesn't mean all the relationships are the same or that love looks the same in all those relationships. It will look different depending on the relationship, but you don't get to pick and choose whom you love. Jesus says you love everyone differently according to the relationship, of course, but you don't get to pick and choose whom you love. And here's the reality that the Old Testament prophets talk about, that the New Testament talks about. If you have no love for a neighbor, then it shows you have a lack of love for God. So you might have issues with people, and you might say, I, I can love these people, but not that person. Well, at that very point, that's where God needs to do business in your heart, because really you're showing, saying, well, yeah, I'll love everyone except this person. And you're demonstrating a lack of love for God, because how did God love you by sending his one and only son to die for you. He died for his enemies. Who God has been, The father has been insulted way worse and be treated way worse than any of you will ever be treated. And he loved you still. How are you doing with love for neighbor? And we could all say, right? None of us has arrived. That's the thing. We understand that none of us has arrived. We, none of us, have perfect love for God or perfect love for neighbor. What do we do then? We see that and say, oh, I'm not loving as I ought to. I need to just work harder at love. No, where we go back to first is the gospel. We go back to the gospel where Christ has loved us and he has done what? What is the Messiah to do? He is to baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit indwells us so that we obey God's commands. And so we go back to the gospel, we give thanks and we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to kill our lack of love for God and lack of love for others and to grow in that love, to do the impossible because none of us wants to love our enemies. None of us wants to love our neighbor. We want to love ourselves. If you love yourself above all and only pursue your own interests, maybe you're here this morning, you're, you don't, you're not a Christian, and you're like, well, I'm just very much interested in about my life and me, and it's all about me and, you know, pursuing my interests. And yes, I'll, uh, you know, I'll be nice to people so that I get my way, right? I'll manipulate people if I don't really love them. Friend, you are an idolater. And you need to repent and have the triune God reshape your affections because you cannot... God commands us to love. God commands an emotion. It's true. God commands emotions. And none of us can do it apart from the grace that is in Christ through the gospel. So that's the first lesson that Jesus has for us. Love Yahweh with all of yourself and love your neighbor as yourself. But there's a second lesson, a final lesson And we see this in verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, so they're still there, right? The idea is, okay, he just kind of silenced them, and they're still around. They're still hanging out right where he is, and they're still gathered together around Jesus. Jesus asked them a question. Now that's a switcheroo, isn't it? Because every time, the three instances before this, someone comes up to Jesus and asks him a question for what purpose? To trip him up, to humble him, and to exalt themselves. Well, now Jesus, the tables are turned and Jesus has a question. Jesus has a question. What's his question? Saying, what do you think about the Christ? I think that's so funny because we know from Matthew, Jesus understands that he's the Messiah right? And the readers of Matthew understand that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's kind of like he's putting this in this hypothetical, yeah, you guys have a conception about the Christ. Remember what Christ means? It's just the Greek form of anointed one, meaning we're talking about the Old Testament Messiah. And, uh, and so he just brings up the topic. Hey, what do you guys think about the Christ? And specifically, whose son is he? Whose son is he? And they answer. They answer right away. They said to him, the son of David. Actually, literally in the original, it's just of David. Like they just instantly complete it. Oh, he's the son of David, right? Which is, let's think about their answer real quick. What do they mean when they say he's the son of David? Well, what they mean is um, this whole idea of the Messiah is the one who's the anointed king. Uh, God promised a covenant. He gave a covenant to David and to his offspring that he would set one of David's offspring on the throne and that David would have an everlasting kingdom. One of his offspring of David would have an everlasting kingdom. So the idea of the son of David is an offspring of the human David, okay? Is that a correct answer? Yes, it is a correct answer. How do we know that? Because as the things have developed in Matthew, how does it start in 1.1? The genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And even in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, what is everyone claiming him to be? He's the son of David. He's the son of David. Remember the blind people right before he enters Jerusalem? Have mercy on a son of David. And then the children in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And, you know, the, the, the religious leaders get all uptight and Jesus, you know, he's, and they're saying, Jesus rebuke them. And Jesus says, no, they're, they're saying what's right. So Jesus understands himself to be the son of David. So their answer is correct. Okay. Their answer is correct. But then Jesus develops this. Verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Now, that may be capitalized in your English version. I would argue that that should be lowercase, and I'll explain why in a minute. Lord, master, the word kurios. You could think of it as master in this case, if you'd like, um, but Lord. How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, Master, Superior? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, what is um, Jesus quoting here? He's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. Go to Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, in your English Bibles, there's a little heading that says a Psalm of David that is part of the original text, that is part of Scripture. And, so, uh, and actually, that's part of what Jesus is alluding to here as well. So this is a Psalm by David, and Jesus acknowledges that in his quotation. He's saying, David wrote this, and it's not that just David wrote this, it's Scripture, so David said it by the Spirit. So this isn't just David's words, these are God-endorsed, God-generated words, Okay? So it's true, has to be true in what it affirms. A psalm by David, verse one, Yahweh. You see how that's capital L-O-R-D in your English Bible? That is the way that the English translators are saying, this is God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord. Now that second Lord is, um, is, uh, is not the word Yahweh. It is the word Adon. And it's the word Adonai, Don't, not to be confused with Adonai. Adoni just means, it's the common noun for Lord or Master. So this is why I say it should be lowercase. It's just the common noun for talking about a Master or a Lord or a Superior. As opposed to the word Adonai, which is the word that is used to represent God. Now, that word shows up in Psalm 110, but it doesn't show up until verse 5. You can see that there. But in verse 1, it's this, a declaration of Yahweh to my Lord, my master. Who's saying that? David is. So David is saying, Yahweh made a declaration to my master, my superior. And here's the declaration. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, you will notice in Jesus' quotation of this, he is calling, he is equating David's Lord, David's master, with the Christ. And you're like, how does he know it's the Christ? Well, let's read the rest of the psalm. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Adonai, the Lord, talking about God, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And what is this depicting? It's depicting the rule of David's Lord over the earth as a king and a priest. That is what, That fits the bill of the Christ. The Christ is a political ruler over the whole of Israel and over the whole of the world. That's what God promised to David, that you'll have a son to sit on the throne forever. So Jesus is right to say, even from the context of this one psalm, yeah, this is the Christ. David's master, David's superior, David's Lord is the Christ here. But go back to Matthew 22. What is Jesus argument? What is Jesus argument? Notice how he prefaces things. He asks a question at the beginning and after his quotation he says this, how is it then that David in the spirit so these are god generated words through David calls him the Christ, the Messiah, his master? And then look at verse 45. If then David calls him his master, how is he his son? What is Jesus' argument? His argument is a social argument. In biblical terms, you're to honor your father and your mother. One of the ways that you honor your father or your mother, at least with regard to relationship between ancestors and descendants, is the descendant, the son, always applies the term Lord or master to his ancestor. You can actually see this in Matthew 21. Remember the the parable of the two children going to work in the vineyard? And the second son, when the father approaches the son, he says, okay, go work in the vineyard. And that child says, I will, Lord, same word. In other words, it's appropriate for a descendant to apply to an ancestor the term Lord, but the reverse is not true. It is repugnant and dishonoring doesn't work like this for a ancestor to call his descendant his superior which is exactly what david is doing and that's the question that's what jesus logic hinges on all right we know the christ is the son of david but here we've got uh, scripture where god is affirming that yahweh is saying to david's master who is the christ and david is calling him his master that's inappropriate so how do we reconcile the two? That's his question. Notice what happens. Verse 46. No one was able him to answer, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did that did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. In other words, what happened in all three prior episodes, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the disciples of the Pharisees are coming up and saying, "All right, let's ask you a question. We'll stump, we'll stump the chump. We'll stump Jesus. And he totally cleans the floor with him. He answers, he humbles them, puts them to silence and exalts himself. Well, now the tables are turned because Jesus is going to do the same thing to them that they wanted to do to him. He asks them a question they're not able to answer. Here are the experts. We got this lawyer that's standing right there who's supposed to be an expert. They can't answer. They can't reconcile the conundrum. So, what happens? The supposed experts are humbled and Jesus is exalted. And you notice, Jesus doesn't answer his question. Jesus doesn't answer his riddle, does he? His point, first and foremost, in doing this is to show these guys are frauds. These guys are frauds as the leaders of Israel. I'm the true teacher. I'm the true teacher, which is exactly what chapter 23 begins with, that discussion of who's the true teacher here. Now, even though Jesus doesn't answer his own question, here's the brilliant part of all of this. The readers of Matthew can solve Jesus' conundrum. The readers of Matthew can solve Jesus' conundrum. How is it possible that uh, uh, a descendant of David, the Christ, is able to call, um, David's able to call one of his descendants Lord, his superior. Well, we understand from the book of Matthew that Jesus is not just the son of David, he's the son of God. What does chapter 1 in Matthew address? It gives a genealogy showing that Jesus has Davidic lineage. But then what does it do? It recounts the virgin conception by the Holy Spirit of the one who's going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. We can see in the baptism uh, with, with, um, uh, with that John baptizes Jesus, the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 through 27. Uh, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We can see in the transfiguration, again, uh, Jesus is displayed in glory and... This is my beloved son. David has to call his descendant Lord because he's not just the son of David, he's the son of God, meaning he's God the son incarnate. And many other episodes and ways in Matthew with Jesus walking on the water, uh, only God gets to walk on water if you were to look at the Old Testament. That is the answer to Jesus' riddle. But because the people he's answering, asking the question to they're not submitting to him. They're not listening to him as a teacher. They can't solve it. But for those who submit, those who bow the knee to Jesus, it's clear. He's called David's Lord because he is God. Even in the context of Psalm 110, remember I said, I pointed out in verse 5, Adonai is addressed, God is addressed, Lord is addressed in terms of deity. Arguably in that verse, the person who's being addressed is the Christ the christ is both human and god so what do we learn from this what do we learn from this well the first thing we learn and we talked about it last week when you try to argue with jesus he will always put you to silence he's always going to win and that's important that's not just an empty platitude because what we tend to do as in our sinful human hearts is we tend to approach the scriptures to stand in judgment over the scriptures. That can't be true because I don't like it. That's essentially what all of our arguments boil down to. That can't be true because I don't like it. It doesn't feel right. Sola, we could add a sola up here, right? Sola feels, right? That's how we operate as evangelicals sometimes, isn't it? Ah, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel, 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 feel. No. What do the scriptures say? And are you going to surrender to the scriptures? Are you going to bow the knee? Jesus is always going to win. So stop standing in judgment over Jesus and the scriptures and submit to Jesus and let him teach you the scriptures. Matthew 11, 28, "Come Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, did you notice something in what the Psalm 110 one actually said? What did you say? The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh declares to my master, sit at my right hand. The Christ is to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's how we would understand it from a New Testament perspective. Sit at my right hand until what? Until I put, so this is the Father speaking, until I put your, the Christ's enemies, under your feet. What is the Father saying? He's saying, all right, we're going to establish your reign, and I'm going, I am Yahweh, I'm going to work for you, the Christ, to put enemies your enemies under your feet now we kind of see that displayed here don't we even in the text where jesus questioners their malicious intent they're humbled but there is a day coming when the christ is going to come back and he's going to reign from a throne in jerusalem and the father is going to put every person who does not bow the knee now and will not bow the knee in repentance and faith under the foot of King Jesus. So the question is, will you bow the knee and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, God in human flesh, who came to die and rise again to rescue his people from their sin? Are you going to bow the knee now, or are you going to bow the knee later? Because you're going to bow the knee. And you want to bow the knee now because if you bow the knee in repentance and faith, I'm done living for myself, I'm done living for me, I'm done uh, with my sin, and I surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ because he alone can rescue me from my sin, from his death and resurrection on the cross, then you will enjoy the joy of that wedding feast that Jesus talked about in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. But if you will not, Jesus will put you to silence at the judgment. You might say, oh yeah, I'm going to have words with Jesus at the judgment. No, you won't. You might say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these great things? And what Jesus says in Matthew 7 is, I'm going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. He, the Father is going to put the neck of a stubborn heart, a stubborn person under Jesus' feet, and Jesus will win. So, why will you die? Bow the knee now because you're going to bow in the future. Silence. Marvel at and obey the supreme teacher, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are God. You are the son of David and the son of God. God, the son incarnate. And we bow the knee. We surrender. Lord, we are sinners. We deserve your wrath. We deserve to be humbled, annihilated. Because our sin is not just doing naughty things. It's a slap into the face of your father. a Slap in your face. But you have provided a chance for amnesty. If we will repent, turn our allegiance from sin and self, and have faith and trust ourselves to you, to your work. Lord, it is humbling to realize the king we have insulted has come to serve us, who are enemies naturally, to make us a people. Such love. Lord, the only proper response is to love you with all of our being and to love one another and to love our neighbors, even our enemies, as you have loved us. Jesus, help us to do so. We are feeble. We know we fail. We thank you for the truths of the gospel that we are forgiven, but Lord, we want to grow. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us this week to love you more, Lord God, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, if there are any in this room who have not bowed the knee, I pray that you would humble them before it's too late, before they are subjugated, Lord, you have shown mercy to those of us who do know you. Show mercy to those who have yet to know you and to bow the knee. We would pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.